This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Kate Andrews and Fraser Nelson. Fraser, you have mentioned several times in the COVID inquiry today where Rishi Sunak took the stand. Why were you so important? <laughs> I think it's the Prime Minister who's the important one. And this very candid interview he gave to me last year, um, which came at a time when he thought he was losing to Liz Truss, or that he knew that he'd lost to Liz Truss, everything seemed pretty bleak to him. And he was a kind of, what have I got to lose mode. So spoke very freely about his frustrations during lockdown, about the complete lack of um, any rigorous analysis, any cost-benefit analysis, and his own shock at finding out the system was as shoddy as it was, and also the way that he felt unable even to make basic inquiries in the system, because inside government, the atmosphere had become so toxic but to ask any questions about the implications of lockdown was seen to be disloyal to the Prime Minister himself. So um, Rishi Sunak, in his Spectator interview, which we called The Lockdown Files, um, which we've made free to read, by the way, if anybody who Googles Lockdown Files and Spectator, you can find the whole thing, went on to be probably the most, I like to think, the most revealing interview that anybody has given uh, about the dysfunction in Number 10 at the time. This seemed to um, make for quite a lot of um, the inquiry's line of questioning. So he was asked again and again, you said this, can you answer why you said this? Sometimes the, Q- the KC got confused and would read out things I'd written saying, why did you say that the fate of the country was being decided by half-explained graphs by outside academics? And Sunik was saying, no, that, that wasn't me, you said that. It was, it, it was the, the it was afraid to mention me, the, the journalist, they kept calling me. Um, but I think this matters because the interview was quite important because Sunak did, at a time where he felt that he was on his way out, he was just explaining what a bad job had been made of it. Now he's in a very different mode. He's in defence mode. He has to defend the government's record. He has to, he can't really say, yes, it's true, uh, the Conservative government cr- was criminally negligent in failing to work out the side effects of lockdown. He can't admit that. So he weirdly is being faced with his own comments and has to slightly um, tiptoe away from them. I have to say, I think the Prime Minister performed fairly well today. He was methodical and careful with his answers. There were a lot of attempts where he was tried to drag into saying something very anti-lockdown. So the question would go something like, would you say? And then what would follow would be, you know, some you were vastly against lockdown or you vastly opposed lockdown in this moment. And he was always really careful with his wording about what he specifically opposed, say a circuit breaker, or, you know, there were trade-offs. But he really avoided getting dragged into the narrative of being pro or anti-lockdown, which I think was one of his biggest risks, because, um, as was mentioned in the inquiry today, he was seen as Dr. Death, or or the pro-death squad, as the Treasury was described. Now, uh, Rishi Sunak says that he didn't know that these names were being called of him and his team at the time, and that he rejects them. Um, But I'm sure he did have a sense going into the inquiry that these were the kinds of accusations that would be put against him. 
you know, it's interesting to Fraser's point that in, in his very candid interview for The Spectator last summer during the leadership race, he is very honest about the dysfunction in, in government. And that's something that he tried not to speak about too much today. Um, when he was pressed on the dysfunction in number 10, his answer was, I didn't work in number 10. Uh, you know, I wasn't around that very much. He clearly didn't want to get dragged into more of the party gate, more of the politics, um, which you know, seems to really have been dominating this COVID inquiry so far. Um, but that being said, he he didn't stray from the fundamentals of what he told Fraser last summer. You know, he was he was talking very honestly about those trade-offs. And, and one thing that I really picked up on was government messaging. He wanted to emphasize that a lot of his frustrations were in the communications. Uh, and he said um, that you can sympathize with a communication strategy that wanted to simplify things. Another quote, better to focus on the health impacts because that would be the way to improve compliance. He was saying that, you know, as he can see why people would do that, but ultimately that was uh, very difficult for him to do because he was looking at the situation thinking this isn't simple. It isn't just about the immediate health implications. It's about the economy. It's about the socioeconomic impact. He talked about kids coming out of school. It's about the deaths happen because people don't get diagnosed with other illnesses. And he was saying that was the bit that was really hard to communicate because there was this simplistic attitude. And I think we all remember that. I mean, I don't love being dragged back two years, three years, gosh, when was it? I don't love being dragged back to those signs, look them in the eye and tell them that, you know, you needed to go for a second walk or whatever. But it was so simplistic. And I think we all knew at the time that nothing was ever that easy, that simple to stay home or not stay home without huge consequences attached to it. And, you know, I think the prime minister spoke very well to that today. I think he could have spoken, to be honest, a lot more candidly. Now, had Liz Truss um succeeded in the premiership and if Rishi Sunak were a backbencher now or or having resigned his seat living in California I think he would be giving rather different evidence right now I think he would be making a bit more emphatically the points that he was tiptoeing away from I think he would be um saying how concerned he was about the fear messaging about how he believed that we were the only country in Europe really to trying to scare the bejesus out of the citizens, where he was, uh, he was worked out, but the messaging was a lot more nuanced in, in continental Europe, and um, why he tried to counteract, counteract that fear messaging with his eat out to help out scheme. This wasn't just to get the restaurants moving; it was trying to repair the damage which he thought had been done to the confidence of a nation over this. And I think he would have probably have gone all out on the way that, uh, on the fundamental flaw in our democracy. And to me, it really jumped out of the inquiry. And this is the biggest single mistake in the way the government's wired. That when the pandemic came, then all of the democratic protections collapsed. They melted away in an instant. There was no parliamentary debate. There was no debate in the cabinet. But even for the chancellor to send an email to the prime minister saying, are we sure about this? That wasn't tolerated. So when you think you've got that level, I wouldn't call it groupthink, because they don't all think the same. It's just they don't dare to challenge. Now, how can you have a good decision made for the country in that environment? So this is structural, by the way. This didn't happen because they're bad people. I think Rishi Sunak was as brave as he could have expected to be in that situation. Had he pushed it any further, he would have had to resign as, as chancellor. And you always get a dilemma there. Do you stay and fight or do you just um, wash your hands and, and, and walk away from the fight? So I think that what you need here is that the lesson that next time there's a pandemic, you need an, almost a formal red, red team, as it were, a group of um, 
an awkward squad of scientists who are there to force all of these questions on the table, to put in front of the Prime Minister the implications of lockdowns that he doesn't want to see. In his interview with me um, last year, Rishi Sunak said that there was nobody who's, who's, who had the incentive to point out the drawbacks to lockdown. The health secretary had the incentive to reduce COVID deaths and basically turn a blind eye to the long-term consequences. The same was true for the chief medical officer, the same was true for the prime minister. So Rishi was telling me that there is a, a structural problem there that needed to be addressed. Next time around, you need to be somebody there who's asking the hard questions because we've seen that the politicians won't. They will go into political mode, a mode where to even question something is seen to be treacherous. Now, that, I think came across from the Matt Hancock WhatsApp files. I went through about a million of his words when I was reading with the Daily Telegraph team all of these things. And I am rather hoping that the Telegraph will make them available to some public library or something because it casts a really important point about the psychological profile, what happens when politicians get caught in this. Uh, they, there's a tribal instinct that not, doesn't just kick in in Britain, it kicked in in every democracy in the world, with the exception of Sweden, where it was run not by politicians, but by public health officials who were credibly stubborn. So this is the system, this is the weakness, not just for British democracy, but for all Western democracies. In a pandemic, you cannot rely on politicians to come up with the opposition. You need somebody else to be giving that challenge, and you need that challenge in times of crisis more urgently than at any other time. I think it's worth reflecting on the Prime Minister's comments um, in front of the inquiry today in light of his current job, because as Fraser says, you know, most people in most other positions might be slightly more frank or have some more cutting things to say. Most people don't end up being Prime Minister when asking to reflect on the previous Prime Minister or two prime ministers ago, minus 49 days. Most people don't find themselves in that position. And I, I think you could pick up on some of that in his language because he was insisting that robust debates were happening, certainly during the second and third lockdowns. He said in the first lockdown, he was like, essentially, we have no data. We didn't know what was happening. There wasn't a lot of debate. And he insisted, this was interesting, he he kept insisting that they were truly following the science. A lot of the narrative is that ministers were rejecting the science back in February and March, trying to stay open as long as possible. And Rishi Sunak had quite a powerful moment today where he explained, he kind of went through the timeline and he was like, when Sage said X, we did X. Sage changed their mind and said Y, and then we did Y. But he said, if you look at the advice and you look at government action, the Prime Minister was constantly reflecting what Sage was telling him to change on. And that obviously ends up changing by the end of the pandemic. Um, and I think it's notable that people like Rishi Sunak were, when they had far more access to data, were the ones leading the charge in December 2021 to say, let's wait with Omicron before we cancel Christmas again and see what happens. And they were ultimately proven completely correct. Um, but in, in Rishi Sunak's um, choice of words today, he said, you know, there was robust debate, but ultimately the decisions landed with the prime minister. You could interpret that as everything that went wrong was Boris Johnson's fault, and I'm pointing it at him. But then he had this almost quip where he said, and you know, the same is, I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially said, and the same is true for, as I do the job now, these decisions land with the prime minister. I wonder if there's any part of him that has a bit more sympathy to Boris Johnson now, um, by no means trying to, to paint these two as, as friends in any capacity. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting that he was talking about the job as prime minister, not simply as what happened during COVID, but as this, you know, overarching responsibility that what happens ultimately lands on you. 
He's felt that all the way through the year with his five priorities, his five pledges. He's made good on one, and arguably the having inflation wasn't really in his control to begin with. He knows what it's like to have that responsibility on his shoulders when things aren't going your way. I just wonder if that's something he's been reflecting on in, in, in uh, looking back on COVID too. I think there's been a bit of a change coming over him, actually. I think he's a palpably different politician to the one he was this time last year. There used to be a bit of a Mr. Smith goes to Washington in Rishi Sunak. He was like the honest man that came along thinking, hang on a minute, you, you can't really lock down the country and not tell them what the drawbacks are going to be. And now I think after being baptised in, in a year of um, tumults with kind of broken promises and a random thing, you're now in a position where he's, for example, keep, he keeps telling us the taxes are going down. He knows they're going up. But I think he's come to a stage now where I think the old Richie Sunak would simply would not say something he knew to be untrue. I think now he's thinking, well, technically it's not untrue if you look at X, Y, and Z. So I think, as you say, Kate, he probably does have more sympathy with Boris Johnson and is working out now that straight talking is difficult if you're trying to defend a record that you basically, chunks of which you think are indefensible. There are some things that you simply cannot admit as a prime minister. And even now, Richie Sunak cannot admit that he thinks that the lockdown uh, arrangements were, were scandalously um, um, bad and failed the country in a massive level. You know, he, he, if he thinks that, which I suspect he probably does, he certainly couldn't say it because now he's there basically defending the, this. I mean, this you know, the chief medical officer who called him Doctor Death now works for him, so he has to defend these people. So that's why I think we can see the inquiry here not necessarily getting to the bottom of things, but they were never really going to. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Fraser. And thanks for listening.